All right, it's one o'clock. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. This is a recovery podcast. We talk about all things recovery in all different areas of life. Uh, obviously, substance abuse, uh, alcoholism, mental health, and sometimes uh, we have other guests on that are recovering from other things too, like unhealthy relationships or uh, certain types of things that have happened in their lives that did not serve them well. Today, we have a very, very special guest. I actually had him on the uh, podcast before. His name is Michaelis. It is. Michaelis is a good friend. Uh, Imagine that. <laughs> the, the crazy thing is, is that I uh, didn't realize that the last time I had Michaelis on the podcast, when I had you on, uh, we learned during that episode that we ran in the same circles and were probably in the same house, partying at the same time back in probably the 90s. Yeah, it's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's small world. Yeah. yeah. Um, Michaelis was recommended to me by another... Uh, I had... Mariana Arcadia on one of my podcasts, and she said, you should get Michaels to come speak. And then when I really started to like reach out and see who you were in the recovery world and um, how far you've come and the, the constant transformations that you've encountered throughout your recovery process, um, you became a person of interest for me, and I wanted you on. Um, I also know that we, we run around those one circles too, those other recovery places where people congregate i won't say it unless you'll say it but um you can say it <laughs> okay i mean aa uh, many different yeah it doesn't 12 step me. yeah i don't really mind either yeah. um but yeah so i know that you're you you're active you love your recovery you love who you are i noticed i started watching your a couple of years ago on tiktok your um spiritual revol revolution page and i would listen to you and i thought this guy is deep like really deep like he's uh, not just a brainiac but i could tell like you definitely have a deep spirit and um and you know what you're talking about and i and so obviously you have this book now that's out it's called spirit the spiritual revolution it's you can be found on what amazon yeah amazon totally. and, okay great yeah. and we'll get into that in a little bit but for those that haven't don't know who you are and have never heard um about you why don't you give us a a synopsis of like your upbringing, your age, where you were brought up and how you got into things and how you got out of things. Okay. Um, well, my name is Michaela Shakobi. I am 46 years old now. And uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Uh, basically, my dad left when I was around two and a half years old. My mom remarried an Israeli guy. Uh, me and my mom had a very weird, enmeshed, pretty unhealthy relationship where it was more of like a friendship than it was an actual mother-son kind of situation. And my father, uh, you know, he was like an Israeli Zionist, had spent a lot of time in the military and dedicated his life to fighting for Israel, literally. And what I found out later was actually he um, was a Mossad agent when I was 30, because a lot of the missions had ended by that time. And so he was living this sort of double life. And just because of some of the traumas of war and stuff like that, he was not really able to show me love in a way that I could recognize it. You know, like he just wasn't very emotionally available. Um, and so that was challenging. I always felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I went to a bunch of private schools when I was young but my family itself was not very rich. My grandparents had a little bit of money. And um, yeah, I, I never felt a part of anything. And I was very resentful 
just as a child, I moved schools every two years all the way through my senior year of high school, trying to escape myself, which obviously, you know, doesn't work very well. Yeah. Um, and thank God I found my parents' liquor cabinet um, at around fifth grade. But drinking was always part of the family and, you know, smoking marijuana was happening too on the down low. I snuck into their room and found their weed too. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, I just wound up triggering the allergy, right? Uh, it was a pretty quick progression for me. I don't think it was necessarily related to my upbringing at all. I just had that thing. And um, yeah, things probably got bad around... 18 years old, you know, uh, me and my mom tried to kill ourselves together when I was 17 and she got put on antidepressants and I was diagnosed ADHD and put on Ritalin. And I think any sort of speedy, anything was my drug of choice. So, so wait a minute here. So you guys, you both try to kill yourselves together, like in the same time. Or yeah. Like a, we era. discussed it and, Oh, you were going to, yeah, it was that. a plan. And what was the plan? Uh, well, I came home late from um, being out with my friends one night, and this was like my senior year of high school. There was a lot of fighting. I mean, I was not doing very well in school. I was fighting my parents. My parents were fighting with each other. It was just not a good look at all, a lot of tension. And um, I came home, and my mom was sitting at the dinner table. It's like 1 a.m. or something, and she was just writing these letters and crying. And because I had wanted to die, I mean, I remember wanting to die probably since I was five, you yeah. know, um, I just never felt like I should have ever been born. I cursed God from day one for even being here. And, you know, when I was born, like I was pretty allergic to the world. I was in and out of the hospitals all the time. So I really thought in my mind that I just did not belong in this earth, mm -hmm. you know, like physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Right. So when I saw my mom doing this, I recognized like where she was at. And I was like, oh, yes, you know, my best friend's going to fucking go out with me. This is the best. And she was writing letters with a plan of, was there a certain way that you guys, uh, you had? Well, we discussed and Louise had just come out yeah. so we had this like romantic idea of like driving off a cliff together and we both enjoyed Decker Canyon which is kind of in Malibu yeah and so our plan was to just like drive off a cliff and I started writing my letters to him we were talking about her or whatever and then she had like a change of heart at some point and was just like you know you're my only lineage and you know you need to live on and blah 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 and so I wound up saying goodbye to her that night and hugging her and, and what was interesting is that our relationship had been in so much discord for so long. And that was like the first time that I felt like we were close again, mm. you know, over this thing. And I, you know, had some immense compassion for where she was. And then I started walking up the stairs after I said goodbye to my mother and that compassion immediately turned to rage and self pity, you know, and she tried to asphyxiate herself in the garage uh, with her car. And my father woke up to the car, running uh because he's a light sleeker sleeper because of the military stuff and he pulled her out there was screaming and yelling and door slamming and all kinds of crazy shit and then like the next day it was like nothing fucking happened it was the weirdest shit just ever. another day it was crazy never spoken about again now you said that she then went and got antidepressants and you got put on ritalin yeah after that yeah, totally. So we both got sent to psychiatrists. I think it was the fad at the sent time. Sent by who? Dad? Uh, it might have been a collective family thing. Yeah. Because right? that was obviously not a great situation. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that wasn't the first time. I remember I tried to or threatened to kill myself when I was in seventh grade. And I remember the school counselor wanted me to see a psychiatrist. And actually, when I saw the psychiatrist, she tried to commit me. My mom was like, we're not doing that. But so, yeah, we wanted to do that. And, you know, this was 1994. So I think at that time, Ritalin and ADHD was all the rage in terms of diagnosis. I think today it's what bipolar. And then, of course, there's trauma. And sure. before that, it was uh, manic depression and. I don't know, whatever. The There's a lot of new names that have been put on stuff. Yeah, totally. It's fucking wild, but yeah. we'll probably talk about that. Yes, we will. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I got medicated and um, in terms of being able to focus at school, it was chill for like the first two hours, but then like the, I don't know, negative effects of Raylan would kick in and I would just be like angry. What were the negative effects? Like, just like empty stomach, like teeth, like shaking, uh, feeling like a tightness in my chest. And you weren't abusing it. You were just taking it as prescribed? As prescribed. 17? Yeah, 17 years old. Um, and, you know, it just made me want to be violent. Like that's really what it, it did for me. Um, so, yeah, it was not a, a good look. But anyway... Um, because I had so many uh, side effects from that stuff, I tried different ways of doing it, tried crushing it up and storing it, tried to mix it with weed, tried to, you know, whatever to manage. Um, and then eventually, once I found Crystal, I was like, this, this is good, right? I know. <laughs> Believe me, I know. This is so much better. I'm going to smoke this um, because I didn't have those effects, right. but I had like the focus. And it seemed that like Crystal was a different kind of thing in it and that it really worked until it didn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I was very like delusional, you know? I mean, the truth is, is that for the last two years of my using, I was homeless, but because I was going from trap house to trap house, like I wasn't homeless. Cause you were, you still had a place to stay. It just wasn't your home. Yeah, totally. I had no home. Like I watched that, you know, um, disappear <laughs> basically. Right. So, and then I was and what like, was that just in the LA scene? Yeah, I was in Venice, actually. Oh, yeah. You, know, you, can, you can easily do that down, down there, for sure. Totally. And I met these people in West LA. I was working in the Venice Boulevard or the boardwalk. Yeah. So, and that's kind of where I met all those people, like Braden, Todd Bird. Yeah. Like, yeah, all those fools. My sister was working down there during that time, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, Venice Rock. Like the West End Logic. Like, yes, yep. That's yep. what we used to do. So yeah. It was pretty active. Yeah, it was great. It was great back in the day. So... Um, you know, but then I just couldn't stay out of jail. Mm. And then finally, the last time that I went to jail was for manufacturing methamphetamine. I had a, my first charge was like an aggravated assault, residential burglary. So they counted that as a strike. Right. The second strike was the possession for sales. And then the third strike would have been this, uh, manufacturing charge. And, um, they wanted to put me away for 25 years of life. Yeah. I mean, three strikes, right? Yeah. And um, across the hall from the lawyer's office was, remember Bob Timmons? Yeah. Yes. He worked across the hall from my lawyer and he happened to be in town. My parents were talking to the lawyer and he happened to make a decision to see if he could help. And he happened to visit me in men's County jail to see whether or not I thought I was an alcoholic. And he had a relationship with the judge that was handling my case because he, get, he got my judge's son sober two years prior, mm -hmm. which was like, miraculous and he's able to talk my judge into reducing my sentence from 25 years to life to six months in treatment in jail which was the impact program at Viscalu back then and then get court committed to liberty house impact in pasadena no it was in custody so oh. they had like an impact program in jail mm -hmm. so Biscalu 
and oh man, I forget what it's civil brand. So there was like a woman's prison back in the day, right? Civil brand, and then Biscalu was attached to it. And they started doing these programs at Biscalu. They did like a domestic violence one and a drug program. Right. So I did the drug program because I wasn't doing domestic violence. And I think that moved to like Linwood and then the Wayside. And I don't think it exists anymore. So did the drug program do anything for you? It introduced me to the 12 steps and it put me in a room full of guys who had spent a lot of time in and out of prison who were much older than me. Mm -hmm. So I got to see my future. But also, like all the stuff that they were talking about, the way their minds worked, how they felt and stuff, shit that I thought was attributed to either ADHD, because that's what I thought, or just attributed to, like, I don't know. I didn't know what it was. Finally, it was under the umbrella of addiction for me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And then there's these solutions, right? This 12-step thing. I was like, there's some hope. So that's kind of what I got out of there, you know, and then some tidbits, of course, from some people, some counselors, Louis Lopez, Gary Jones, Louis Orta. But yeah, I mean, that's really what it did is it introduced me to that. There's a possibility of hope for me. And you were how old right then? I was 22 years old. Yeah. So did you stay sober? I did. You I got did. out and went to sober living or I went to Liberty house. Liberty, you're a product of Liberty house. I remember that. Yes. I'm a product of Liberty house. And they, or no nonsense, or at least they weren't back then. I think they, yeah, they definitely were not back then. Larry Luttrell, who was the director was deeply involved with Liberty house at that time. And Larry, that's from Kansas or uh, Kentucky, Kentucky. Yeah. Kentucky. He's my mentor. Yeah, yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. yeah I met he really him. is. Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely my mentor. He taught me a lot about people, about my own intuition, about a lot of different stuff. You know? So how long did you stay at Liberty house? Uh, I graduated after 10 and a half months, but I stayed on to manage it uh -huh. for a period of time afterwards. So then you got to uh, everything you had learned in your own recovery process. You got to like uh, carry that vision and teach the people that were there afterwards. Uh, totally. But the thing is, is that um, what I learned then is the recovery process is not anywhere near my recovery process. Today. Was it because it was a rigid form of recovery? No, it just wasn't really recovery. It was behavior modification. Right. Right. It was questioning your thinking. It was um, building integrity through getting honest. It was showing up for consequences. It was, um, you know, a lot of self-awareness and self-knowledge being placed on you from outside perspective, mm -hmm. which is cool. But in terms of really something that I believe heals people in recovery, it lacked that part. So let's... Good to look at it like that. Like, yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, I got sober in a, an environment like that too. There was a lot of consequences. There was a lot of writing assignments. There was a lot of being redirected. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in a sense, it kind of made me very overly rigid when it came to recovery, totally. especially when I opened my own places. Like right. before that, I tried to attempt doing it at other places where I was a manager, like let's say for a treatment center that had a sober living. Mm -hmm but they didn't want to lose their clients. So you had to be really nice and totally. kind of just bite your tongue a lot of times and not say it's certain a things. different culture today for sure. Like totally you, different culture. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny because about eight years ago, I was actually at a meeting in Westwood that Liberty house had started. It was right. They basically, it was a lot of their alumni had started it. So, they had a lot of their newer members and the alumni there. Bobby Daly. 
he was the awakenings yeah. And, yeah, yeah yeah okay cool and what's his name uh ken mariosh dave dave he who was part of awakenings also yeah, I remember, but... but um but, but just being in that environment and seeing like i thought oh, i am in an a meeting right now because everyone's grouping someone right now right like at first it was an AA meeting where i spoke they asked me to come speak but then afterwards like they started going and calling on people and they call them one day they're like how are you doing it he's like i'm good and they're like but are you really are you really and then they started grouping him and i thought oh this is the type of environment i got sober oh this is liberty house i forgot yeah, these totally. guys yeah 100 which is cool i mean also look man i learned how to clean a bathroom right i learned how to cook right you know i learned how to show up on time like there's definitely life skills that I got from that place. And I learned how to get grouped and how to group other people. But um, yeah, I don't necessarily know if that's like effective for the long term. I think a lot of people might stay sober in those environments due to fear or shame. Yeah. Um, or even making the house like their higher power. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a good way to look at it. I actually talked to Dano about this a few years ago about his alchemy house. Mm -hmm. And he himself too said that like, we don't really do writing assignments that much anymore. I think a lot of people and same in some of my houses, like there's some writing that happens, but it's not for major, major issues. It's like, you know, some redirection, like you messed up a couple of times. Why don't you write about it? And then let's move on. Yeah. So, but um, let's, so then what happened? How, how long were you a manager there? I was manager for, I don't know, maybe two or three years. Okay. And then I burned out. And then I went to go, you know, I mean, a lot had happened. I got to go pregnant. Um, I had a son. I had custody of the son for a while because um, it was just, she was a little bit of a mess at the time. And. Um, is the son still in your life? Yeah, totally. How he's, old is he now? He's 22. No, really? Yeah, it's crazy crazy yeah i just had dinner with him and his um i don't know if it's his girlfriend his friend girlfriend whatever he lives in la uh yeah he's staying he's taking care of my family right now actually my dad's really sick and um my mom is working
like all that stuff. It just, you know, shit came and went and, you know, my emotional stability was like this instead of any sort of peace. Okay. And then what inspired you to move to Bali? Cause I know eventually you did move there. Um, well, by that time I was really free. Uh, so I started this specific process in sobriety, probably around nine and a half years sober. And what process is that? This dude took me through, um, the big book in a way, and it wasn't the format itself that was life-changing, although it was life-changing. There were some concepts in there that I'd never heard before, but, um, really the emphasis was like, I meet with him on a Tuesday. We work for an hour. We get through whatever pages we can do that an hour. And then the next six days until I meet with him again is really about me passing on just what I'm like learned from him that day to as many people as I could. Right. So it was all about service. It was all about selfless practice. It wasn't about understanding. It wasn't about, you know, having a full scope of what the big book he was getting you into service as you went along right away immediately, which is, I think it changed remarkable. Everything. Well, what's so funny is that it, it gets you out of self. You don't need to try to figure this stuff out for what you need for you. You're like, well, this is what I learned here. Like, this is totally. what I learned. Right. What's like remarkable that it's remarkable is that like, that's how this whole thing started. Yeah. Like, exactly. It, you know what I mean? Like, it, didn't it was have just steps laid out. Yet. No steps. It was word of mouth. It was like, no one had any time. They had like a day. And if like you were in a detox bed, they're like, yo, dude, talk to the guy in the next detox bed since we just talked to you. Yeah. I mean, it was always an altruistic movement. Like there was no like deep dive in the steps or I'm going to fucking like intellectualize and break down this big book better than you. And I'm like going to know this historical fact better than like all that stuff. Big book dictionary. It's so dumb. That's like the, the big book dictionary is dope. But yeah, like the way people approach it or even like this idea of you have to work all 12 steps before you can actually do the one thing that's going to help you. Uh -huh. is crazy, you know? So, okay, so this, do you still talk to the guy that took you through this process? He fucking died, dude. He died in 2021, I think. Did yeah. you talk to him when he came back? Uh, or had you been back yet? I don't think I was back yet. Maybe it was in 2000. He he died just before I came back. Sure. So then you moved to Bali. And I when did. you went to Bali, this style of doing the steps, you went into there with people you met there? Uh, well, basically, I didn't know anybody there. I'd gone to a DJ convention in Hawaii for AA mm -hmm. and there was like two people that I met who lived in Bali that were at that convention. Okay. And so that's all I knew. So I went there and I just went to meetings and like built rapport, but I was still working with people via FaceTime in LA. Okay. So I've not missed a day. I've worked with like one to nine people every single day for the last 14 and a half years, like every day in the book. Talk people. about getting out of self. Well, daily reprieve too. I got to treat that mind, right? Otherwise, yeah. I'm going to believe that lie. I need to like practice like being in the moment. This is a very simple practice of doing that. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to forget that I'm a fucking alcoholic. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is specifically, I don't want to forget that I have the allergy, you know? And what's cool about the process is that it's taught me really about what alcoholism is and what it's not. And I think that one, one of the reasons there's like so much stigma around alcoholism is because people group all this human shit under the umbrella of alcoholism, like lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, trying to get over on people, cutting corners. Like that's not alcoholism. That's not alcoholism. That's right? just a human being. Dude. Right. So what right? is alcoholism? It's just, I have an allergy to alcohol. If I, I mean, put, it's right there in the book. What alcoholism is. It, it describes it more. One symptom. Alcoholism. Well, right. they talk about the doctor's opinion. They yeah. only have one symptom common. Right. That's it. 
The only thing is, is that I cannot drink and use without triggering the phenomenon of craving or right. craving beyond my mental control. Right. That's it. Plain as day. If totally. you really read in the book, like right. you see the examples that they, the stories of the different people right. and how they, the peculiar mental twist, the strange mental playing spots. One second he's thinking that thing, the next thing he's drunk, right? Totally. But people have that all the time. Like, you know, there's people out there who go out and get a speeding ticket in the car and you know, they have to go to court, they have to pay a fine and have these consequences. Right. But do you think that stops them from speeding the next day? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like they'll find a different way or they try to avoid cops. Or they get the radar. Like people are constantly trying to like rationalize their behaviors and find new ways around it. So but if it's not alcohol, then the, what is it? The ego? It's just human. Just human. And that's the thing. It's like, I really believe that the majority of what we are calling mental health today it's just human condition. Mm -hmm. And if we spend more time just fucking talking to each other mm -hmm. and getting to know like what each other's struggles are, complete strangers even, right. you'll see that like we're all connected. Like so I'm I'm sometimes brought on to coach people, right? Mm -hmm. Um some of them have addiction problems and alcohol problems, but some of them have straight up mental health, like primary mental health, right? Right. And when I talk to them, like it's very obvious a lot of times when I'm talking to them, there are some people that you they may have a, a major chemical imbalance and that's why they need certain medications to keep them stable. Maybe. Maybe. Right. But I also, I sometimes see, and my friend Chris Howard says, like people that weaponize their... He's my friend. He's, he's, <laughs> such, a, he's such a good guy. He's my best friend. No, I'm kidding. He's such a good guy. Best he talks about people weaponizing their mental health a 100%. lot of times. 100%. Right? Yes. And then I also, I think to, I listen to this one guy that I'm trying to work with quite often more recently... There's no gratitude for anything, zero. And it's like, I just tell him, you know, we, we try to read the four agreements together because it's a simple read and I just mm -hmm. want him to kind of look at himself. Um, but he's just depressed morning, noon, and night. Totally. And he's totally got everything he needs in life, at right. least at this time. But he wants more. Of course. So I think, all right, well, that just sounds like a, a person that's very self-centered and wants what they want. Yes. And if they don't get what they want, they're going to say, I'm depressed. Totally. Plain and simple, right? Yeah. So, so the medications that you were on the past was it just Ritalin, or did you end up on other kinds of? Medicine? There was times they try to put me on Wellbutrin. There's times they try to put me on Lexapro. There's times they try to put me on Seroquel, which I stopped like after two days because um, it just made me feel weird. And it was specifically while I was in the mental institution. I tried to kill myself twice in my first 10 years of sobriety. Oh. Once at five and a half years and once at six and a half years. I remember years. you said that. So, I mean. And I, why was that? Uh, well, you can call it depression. You can call it anxiety. Or you can call it just extreme self-centeredness. You know? That's the thing. Uh, when you try to kill yourself those times, were you on medications? Um, the first time I wasn't. And the second time I wasn't either. But I had been on Lexapro, I think, for maybe eight months and then I got off of myself because I didn't I felt like a shell of a human. I didn't feel like I was even in this world. I want to ask you this question then and I'm not you can answer it any way you like and I know you will. Do you think sometimes when they put people on uh, depression medications or or mood stabilizers or uh, anxiety meds do you think that that can sometimes cause more mental health for the person or more it can increase whatever it's actually supposed to treat based off the dosages, 
the the highs and the lows. Their body becomes dependent upon it. Their brain becomes dependent upon it. So when they don't have enough of it or they are being tapered down or certain things, does, do you think it messes with the chemical makeup that's within their brain? Yes. Um, I mean, I've known guys that I've worked with who are in their 20s now, but were started being put on mood stabilizers and shit from when they were six years old. Okay. And yeah, dude, they're, they do wild shit. But the truth that I believe is that honestly, the um, pharmaceutical industry, the psychiatric industry has literally no idea what the fuck they're doing right. when it comes to brain health. Um, yeah, we can sit here and talk about neural pathways and shit like that, but really nobody fucking knows. Like the brain is still an enigma. Um, and so I think that a lot of these medications are like, you know, psychiatrists with a blindfold on just sort of like throwing at a fucking dartboard and whatever cocktail works and talking to the patient to see about, oh, how's that affect? I mean, I see that shit change all the time and I do see it bring on, you know, um, deeper issues. And I think that like if people were less apt to, you know, try to use a pill to solve something that's so simple. It's really just a manifestation of self, um, you know. So that brings me to this question. Hmm. Microdosing hallucinogens, microdosing ketamine. Uh, it's the latest craze for the last few years now. I mean, it's being offered in some treatment settings. There's doctors that do ketamine therapy. What do you think, like, when it comes to people that are in recovery, um, if they feel like some doctor told them they have some mental health that they need to address some deeper rooted stuff, do you think this stuff is effective as far as ketamine therapy or uh, psilocybin or even LSD or ecstasy? Okay. This is... I, I get this question all the time, actually. In fact, I was just like interviewed by... a company that's trying to write policies for the um, use of microdosing of hallucinogens and stuff like that. So a lot of people are using Bill Wilson's experience to rationalize this thing. Now, the idea of like utilizing hallucinogens to have a spiritual awakening is not new. That's old as fuck, dude. It's, right? Yeah. Now, when it was proposed to bill wilson like it was proposed in the context of people in a detox situation mm -hmm. and what he was looking for and this is because when he got sober um he was hallucinating off of belladonna right. you know and his second white light experience came from that so bill was under the impression that you needed to almost have a white light experience to open up your mind to this process right right so at 20 years of sobriety Bill starts taking acid for like four years, trying to have a spiritual experience. No, trying to see if this could elicit a spiritual awakening. Right. And I see a difference between a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience. A spiritual awakening is like an epiphany, a revelation, or like an event, which can be a hallucinatory event. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, a spiritual experience is the, like long-term sustainable application of what you learn in that event, right? In your life, right? right? The actual practice. That's having an experience with it. 
Bill had no business at 20 years doing something that was specifically designed for someone in detox. Okay. Right. That dude was fucking depressed. He was not doing well. He was cheating on his fucking wife. Mm-hmm. Like there was a lot of life issues and I can relate to all those life issues. So I'm not judging him whatsoever. Right. You know, and I'm sure that if I didn't find the big book, like I would have been one of those dudes who'd be champion for fucking hallucinants, right? Hallucinants right. right now. Right. So do I think that it can give you that initial spiritual awakening? It's possible. But for people who are real addicts and real alcoholics, and unfortunately, there's a because alcoholism isn't spoken about in the meetings, mm. typically, it's all this other fucking shit, and people don't focus on the allergy. There's a lot of people in meetings who aren't alcoholics and addicts, right? So for some of those people, like I'm working with a guy who did go out on an ayahuasca thing, right? Wanted a next level of spiritual experience. And that dude fucking lost his mind and like went hard on some other shit, other shit. because it triggered the allergy, right. you know? And then I know people who can microdose mushrooms or microdose whatever and be chill. I, I know people that still claim the amount of years that they're sober and they microdose mushrooms and they're fine with it. Totally. They feel judged by some that they talk to about it. They say like, there's not a lot of people that agree with this. And I just tell them, Hey, your sobriety is your sobriety. I'm not. Um, cool. But... They'll, they'll ask me what I think. I'm like, I can't. I just can't. Like, I can't unleash the beast, and I feel like it will. Yeah. Like, I don't care. It's yeah. not sober in terms of, like, entire abstinence. Right. Like, I don't care. Yeah, you're right. It's fine. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't care. You don't have to be sober. You don't. Like, if... Like, that's working for you. Fucking, I don't give a shit. Yeah, my friend Gil said it perfectly. He said, if you're still seeking a power from some kind of substance or some kind of formulatic like equation of what you're going to put in your head outside of this power, then you're still seeking something to to kind of give you a head change to think that you're going to feel different and the problem, see differently. Like, in saving face and calling yourself sober when you're doing that is that there's people who can't do that. Right. And they see you doing that and you're claiming sobriety and they think, oh, well, it's still sober. And then they do that and they're fucked. Mm. Right. So it's like a very self-centered like thing to sort of continue to like call that sobriety when it's not the sobriety that we're talking about for alcoholics and real addicts who need to be entirely abstinent. Right. So what about people that are on suboxone maintenance but want to work the process of the steps? Do you think that they're still holding themselves back from actually maybe possibly having a spiritual experience well wait can i go back to your first question please do okay cool so we're talking about a spiritual awakening that still needs to be followed with a sustainable practice Mm -hmm. like you can't and let's look at these awakenings right the most awakened thing that you could ever learn is that we are all one and we are all connected it's not going to get any deeper than that Mm -hmm. and the only thing that really gets in the way of us understanding our connection is the self right and how we identify with self so you're going to need to have a selfless practice to follow that you know awakening in order to make it a sustainable thing for your life otherwise you're just going to be fucking high for the rest of your life Hmm. like where's the freedom in that now you're like committed to this thing when you're not really actually experiencing what life is you know so even bill saw that which is why after four years he was like you know what this is not super great for the fellowship but also it doesn't replace his selfless practice. You know, he forgot his own words hmm. and his own words was, you know, if an alcoholic didn't, you know, perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice with others. Right. Right. That's how we do that. So, you know, um, and then back to the, 
uh, MAT, right? Suboxone. What was the actual question? Then? So people that are on Suboxone maintenance right. want to be members of a 12-step group, want to work the 12 steps. Um, there's many... <laughs> we'll, we'll that's the thing there's no. a lot of people that say you cannot have a spiritual experience if you are supposedly the brain's receptors when you're on suboxone will not allow you to actually have a spiritual experience is this something you believe i don't know i don't know um the thing is is that whenever i've been on any sort of anything um it's it's basically cut me off from power, clarity and power. Yeah. You know, I mean, the truth is for me is that like the God that I'm seeking is twofold, right? There's the like universal God as a whole, but there's also the God that I am. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm just a part of this thing. You're God. I'm God. He's God. She's God. He's God, you know, but we're also all pawns of, you know the universe working in each other's lives you know right so god is within all of us obviously totally the soul the way i believe is the soul was here before we the body got here yeah and that comes from god yeah totally Depending so on, you know what your belief system is so um what were you going to say anything else no with like the mat i mean i i think that like for the sake of you know some people for real alcoholics and real addicts i think that that fellowship like should be kept pure just because some people can't like do that stuff and survive you know and we're talking about a day and age where like people are dropping like flies from fentanyl yeah you know what i mean it's like we get to create the fellowship that we crave right um and it's kind of like why i wrote the book that i wrote is for anybody to like start their own thing like it's it's not the 12 steps in the sense that it's the 12 steps but it's really what the essence of how this program um was intended to be worked but made for anybody whether they're an mat whether microdosing mushrooms it's really the practice that those people um can take to actually elicit that spiritual experience so that if they wanted to stop microdosing they have a practice now or even as simple as like you go to your therapist and you, you know, get awakened to these things about yourself in this introspection, like it will give you a practice between that and your next therapy appointment or MAT people, you know, who want to get into a selfless practice and really like learn to love themselves and see the connection. Maybe it's something that will <clears throat> help them desire to get off of that stuff. Cause I think like MAT for life is like not life, dude. You know, it's like a robbing yeah. yourself of the opportunity to have experiences outside of totally. what's holding you back. Yeah, 100 yeah. percent. And that's not like a judgment on that. It's no, just it's like it, it's just reality. Total reality. I mean, it's a kind of a no brainer, but yeah, uh, totally. You know? But I think so. I, I was going to ask you another question. but I'm going to hold off on that because I think I want to wait to see more about your book. Now, this is the spiritual revolution. Uh, Michael, you wrote this book. Yeah, you kind of explained a little bit like why, right. but um, what is it? What is it about? Why did you put it together the way that you did, and what's your intention through it? Um, 
okay, what is it about? It's not really about, it's basically a book that will allow you to have a spiritual experience. So it's not a book that you read by yourself. It's a book that you practice with as many people as you can. Mm -hmm. So really what it does is it's, you know, gives you different spiritual concepts, but also a bunch of different discussions. Um, and, you know, there are some things that are, I guess, 12 step ish, the assessment um, mirrors kind of like an inventory process and uh, the restoration of balance um, mirrors and amends process, but it's not necessarily stuff either in the big book or stuff that you hear from meetings. Um, it's really directed towards anybody suffering from the human condition. And that's what I was seeing. It's like when COVID hit and I was in Bali, like um, I just saw like people losing their shit. Yeah. Like everybody, you know, um, there's a lot of fear. Yeah. Lots of fear. And I was not experiencing any. And when like the meeting shut down or, you know, whatever happened, like I was doing book sessions with people in my house every day. And I was like, I'm fucking chilling. I'm in this moment right now. Like, I don't know what the fuck's happening out there. Right. And it's the same thing with me today now. It's like, yeah, there's like impending World War Three. There's like shit with the Kardashians. Did there's you? fucking Ukraine. There's like all kinds of weird shit going on, apparently, on this world, but not in my world. You know? And does that make me a fucking moron or does it make me happy? No, yeah. I think it makes you happy because you want to be at peace. You don't want to let all of these it's nonsense happen in the world to consume you right and you know where i'm getting that information from a little box screen like in my hand yeah like i don't know if anything that's happening like all i know is i'm chilling with my homie you know what i mean yeah. and everything's fucking good so like it's a book that allows you to launch yourself into the present where you can actually find peace it's a book that's going to allow you to practice getting outside of yourself and it's a book that you're going to actually learn a lot about yourself in the process you know and it's going to um put you on a spiritual path that's very simple and practical you know but the more people that you read it with like the more connected you are going to be the more practice you are at selflessness the more you're going to spend time in the moment it's one of those things that you can take for life do for life do with as many people as you can you can start with people that you're familiar with and then move to complete fucking strangers it doesn't even matter it's just um, a way to practice being a blessing so your intention is obviously kind of, it sounds like, to piece. you put it together so that you could put it out there the same way that guy took you through the steps that time. Basically. Yeah, totally. Like read it with your friends. Do it together. Yeah, 100%. And then get the butterfly effect. Like just keep spreading it because it'll... Totally. And you know, um, in its like most idyllic and uh, sort of, I guess... Um, grandest explorations of growth i mean it will be the destruction of countries it'll be the destruction of borders it'll be a destruction of government it'll be the destruction of the pharmaceutical industries and it will you know be a real sort of peace on earth everyone working together kind of a thing so i know it's it sounds beautiful big talk but it's possible because it's just one person at a time right you know right and um you got married when I got married January 1st of this year. Okay. So yeah. we were talking real quick before this about. Um, you, she helped me edit this book. She helped you edit it. You, guys, you wrote it. You guys edited it together. You published it yourself. You didn't want the publishers to change it. Yeah. They, they want to do some weird shit. Right. 
past relationships that you had messes with women were yes. messes. Absolutely, every single one. I brought up to you that I think because um, I'm very much in love right mm -hmm. now. I, I feel we have ups and downs, but um, I think all people do, or many people do in relationships. But um, I said I don't think I've ever been in love before. Like really felt in love with someone, and you said I don't think I've ever been in a relationship before with anybody with but yourself. Yeah, I was in a relationship with self. I was in a relationship with you know um, how they made the self feel. Uh, reflections of self. Um, I just couldn't see the other person. It was either what I was trying to get from them or, you know, whatever. And not like necessarily monetarily, but just validation seeking all that, you know? So yeah, I really needed a selfless practice in order to be able to have a relationship with another human being, any kind of relationship. The female relationship for me or the intimate relationship was always the biggest challenge for some reason. Like when it came to sex and stuff like that, it just, um, yeah, I think there was like a false power um, that was very confusing for me, you know, reciprocated back and forth. And also, um, I mean, I was never able to stay faithful to anybody. Uh, so I think like there's a couple of gifts of this process in the book is like a it launches you into the present. So you're clear about what's actually in front of you. B that you're selfless enough to recognize what's actually in front of you, not like what it's reflecting to you about you, mm -hmm. but seeing the person for what they are and see like when you're connected to a power greater than self, that's loving you and wanting the best for you and taking care of you no matter what, then there's a certain fearlessness that comes with that. And that fearlessness is what I use to, and what she uses as well, to be like 100% rigorously honest with each other. And that's the only way that I know that intimacy is built today, you know, like real honesty, 100%. honesty about everything. So, you know, I took her through the big book too. We read inventory to each other. I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people will tell you, keep your program separate, but if this is your partner, yeah. Like, why would you want to keep anything separate? This is your partner. Actually, in the big book, it says in one part. Totally. That you can read inventory to each other. But they also, <laughs> you know, because Bill was doing some weird shit, right? So, you know, they had this, like, whole clause, especially in the men's thing, where it's like, whether to do so would injure them or others, or maybe we shouldn't tell her this or whatever. But the truth is, is that that would never work in my relationship because it's built on intimacy and striving for that, you know? So you know, this is the first time in my life where I've ever been 100% honest with another woman, um, haven't been attracted to anybody else, haven't been with anybody else, haven't slid into anyone's DMs, haven't engaged with anyone trying to slide in my DMs, not, not telling her about anything about that stuff. Like we communicate literally everything. And, um, you know, we've set like boundaries for people outside of the relationship and we keep them, you know, which is cool. And one of the most beautiful things is like, not only are we attracted to each other and love with each other and stuff like that, but like we are aligned with purpose, mm -hmm. you know, like very specific, like my house is like an Alano club, you know, We've people got, come through because you guys are all doing recovery. All we do is big book studies all day. Right. So we've got like a men's stag meeting on Tuesday. We have a women's stag meeting on Wednesday and then book sessions all day. I'd love day. to come through. Yeah. Come through and hang out. Yeah. It's great. It's a lot of fun. 
So this takes me back to the question I wanted to ask you before. Um, if somebody comes to you and asks you to take them through the book mm -hmm. and says- Which book? The big book. Okay. When you say book sessions at your house that you're doing right now, is it the big book or is it this? That's big book. But I started doing this for non-alcoholics, non-addicts, or um, there's some couples and stuff that, you know. But the cool thing about it is that I don't really have to take anyone through this they because, yeah, they do it themselves. Yeah. That's the other thing. I'm like, and we talked about this earlier. I'm doing anything. I'm not the fucking guru here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everyone has their own power within them. You don't want to be the guru. I want them to find yeah. their own power. You know, in the same way with the big book. So too. if somebody says to you, Alan, I'm on Suboxone, will you take me through the big book? What do you tell them? Um, that happened to me, actually. And this is what I told them. First, I said, I need to meditate on this and get back to you. I asked him some questions. So I was like, do you have any plan on getting off of it? Yeah. And he said, no, I don't ever want to get off of it because I'm too afraid that I'm going to relapse if I do, because that's what's always happened. But of course, like if you get off of Suboxone and you don't know what the program is and you don't know how to work it, yeah, you're going to fucking relapse. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen to me too if I'm in Suboxone or not, right? Right. So he had no plan of getting off of it. So I went home and meditated and really what came to me was like, yeah, I can go and show up and do big book sessions with this guy. I will treat myself, right? I will treat my body. I will treat my mind. I will treat my spirit. I'll walk away feeling fine. But what am I setting this kid up for, right? So now his whole recovery is predicated on him passing that on to people. Now, there's a lot of people in the rooms who are not going to want to work with somebody who's on Suboxone. They're not going to consider that sober. And so either he's going to have to lie and not tell anybody about it and sit in shame and secrecy about that, or he's going to tell people about that and they're going to fucking reject him mm -hmm. and make him feel more shameful. So am I really being the blessing to this kid's life by giving something to him that's an impossible task? Mm. You know, so I was just like, no. But if you want to get off of Suboxone, let me know I'm down. And at that time, I didn't have this book yet. I would have taken him through this. And he could have passed my book on to people with Suboxone and it would have like elicited the same experience, you know. So that's how I feel about that. Awesome. Um I guess I could ask you like one or two more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. But a lot of people, when they go through the big book, they, uh, they put Bill Wilson on a pedestal. Well, Bill said, and Bill, as Bill sees it and Bill said, and Bill said, but you know, you talked a lot today about the imperfections uh, that Bill himself possessed. One of them obviously um, was that he was very much depressed. Mm -hmm. um, another one is that he was committing adultery. Um, and I know you said no judgment. I understand that completely. Um, when he wrote the 12 and 12, I think it was when he was 17 years sober. And it wasn't just written by just him. I think he had somebody else that helped him put it together. So Father Dowling, he was basically like, um, I guess, sponsoring Bill at the time. But it was like, he was kind of like more of a therapist than he was anything else and you know bill was struggling he was in depression he had already been cheating on lois and for the most part he really wrote the 12 and 12 on his own with some influence and it was basically my wife puts it as like this is basically bill wilson's step work you know which is cool uh it's a breakdown of the steps um but 
now that I like understand the sort of mindset of where Bill was, where he was writing that, which is kind of like this idea of like, life's going to suck. You're going to have fucking character defects, but here's how you stay sober. Do it. Yeah. You know, as opposed to, you know, sanity's going to return. You can trust your thinking. We come to rely on it. You know, you'll find selfishness and self-seeking slip away. You know, the great fact is nothing less like all the promises in the big book, you know, when it was the closest to people actually doing the work, which is the other thing. Bill stopped doing the work. You know, he did the work and you read it in the 12 and 12 where he's like, yeah, being of service is fucking baking cookies for your meeting. Maybe that's a fine way to do it. But the truth is, is that that's not the service that was rehabilitating alcoholics in the beginning. Right. It was the one-on-one carrying the message. So Bill became more of the guy like, I'm going to be serving AA as a whole, but forgot about the simple practice. You know, and that's really what got him fucked up, mm-hmm. which is why Bob didn't have that experience because that fool stayed quiet in his home and just like fucking rode alcoholics like a train through his house. You know what I mean? Right. Doing like service work. So um, I don't fuck with the 12 and 12 just because I don't see the point. It doesn't tell you what the program is or how to work it. Uh, the breakdown of the steps, like there's some nuggets in there that are fucking cool, but not any cooler than I haven't read in the big book. Right. And, you know, it's like the cliff notes, you know, are you going to read the book report on the book? Or are you going to read the book? Right. You know, so it's uh, it, it's good literature to read after you go through the steps. But, Maybe. But it's not recommended to take some. There's a lot of people take people through the steps straight out of the 12. And 12. That's how I was done. I mean, that's the thing. It's like things just get passed on the way they get passed on. And I think like people need to have their experience with it. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of people that I know that have stayed sober for decades living off the 12 and 12. And if that works for them, great. So the message that I really carry is for the people that that shit did not work for. You know, it wasn't awakenings, which I did. I just started working with this guy this weekend where it's like he's doing that, but the difficulty is passing it on. And getting the people he's working with to pass on. You mean because it's so they dissect it. There's so totally. much work, and to be able to convince somebody, hey, I'm going to keep you under step one for a month and a half till we really, really dissect this stuff. Yeah, like what the, you know what I mean? So that's the thing. It's like you need to get in service right away, and because otherwise, check it out. If the people that I'm working with aren't working with other people, yeah. then I am the guru. Mm-hmm. But if the people that I'm working with are working with other people, and they're their own guru. You know what I mean? That's the thing. So like, this is really about everybody finding their own God within them. The only thing that gets in the way of us and our connection to God is the self. So the more they move the self out of the way, the more they're connected to God, right? Mm. So they get to have that experience immediately, which means that I never get to be anybody's guru, which is a fucking great. I love that. Yeah. One last question. So we talk about in the 12 step world, a God of our own understanding. Yet, totally. yet many times mm-hmm. we don't, we say we don't understand God, but it just is there, right? Right. Over the years, I mean, obviously you've had times when you wanted to kill yourself and, you know, all that, but you're at a point now, is it a one absolute God that you believe in, in your life? Um, well, it's evolved, right? It started very simple. Okay. And it was this. Um, because the set aside prayer in the beginning, 
right? God, take away everything I think I know about this book, about this process and about you, God, so that I can have an experience with you. So then I need to look at like, okay, life experience. How do I want to feel as I experience life, right? And at that point, like I said, I'd only try to kill myself a bunch of times. I was living in like emotional turmoil. I had a lot of self-hatred. It was just fucking shit. So what I wanted to feel, my ideal was to feel, you know, fucking at peace Mm -hmm. just to feel okay to feel some joy you know and then it was like okay cool what kind of god do i need to believe in to feel that i need to believe in a god that loves me wants the best for me and takes care of me no matter what that's simple you know now it's all choice belief everything is Mm -hmm. you know and we do that shit all the time with everything so it's like just like the choice belief of I'm a piece of shit. Nobody's going to love me. I'm always going to cheat on everybody. You can choose to be negative. Totally. And right? that's going to be your reality. Or you, if you put positive energy to the universe, you're going to get positivity. Well, even if I didn't put positive energy to the universe, I still got positivity. That was the thing. It's like if that was true, I never would have been sober. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like even all those, you know, nine and a half years, like the universe still got me to this dude who taught me this book. Even after all the 22 years of all these failed relationships where I was a real fucking piece of shit, the universe still brought me the love of my life. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm being taken care of. Yeah. You weren't, (laughs) no matter what. And I don't have to do shit. So it started with that. And then it started to understand that like, okay, cool. Um, really what I am is I am the light of God, right? Mm -hmm. So are you, which that's more to me about a purpose. So I don't really like even identify, and I know we're not talking about gender identification, but I don't really identify even as being Michaelis today or being anything that is Michaelis. Really what I see myself as is just a purpose. It's just like a principle, like, you know what I mean? Just, my only job on this earth is to be the blessing to whatever's in front of me. You know, the more that I practice that, which I practice it every day specifically, and now it bleeds into other areas of my day, like the more at peace I am. And the thing is, is that if I'm thinking of a God that loves me, wants the best for me, and takes care of me, and care of me no matter what, then what I'm really describing is a servant, a servant to me. Like God is a servant to me. The universe is a servant to me. So the best way to connect to that is to act like that to be a servant to God. And if you're God and then you're God and you're God and you're God, then, and the reason why that puts me in the most powerful position and at peace is that, you know, if I'm just trying to be the blessing to you without any expectation of reciprocation, then you can't fuck with me. Hmm. There's nothing that you can do. The problem was, is that I needed to really understand what was self-motivated service and what was selfless motivated service. And the only way I really knew was through the book work because there's a lot of stuff out in the world that I thought was selfless motivated, but it wasn't, it was self. It was low key self. Yeah. I would have expectations or I'd have like, yeah. And just tied into results or disappointments. And, you know, um, yeah. The thing about the book work is that, and anyone can have this experience today now is that like, um, I, fucking i have no attachments to it at all nice you know so that's cool very nice well i think with that said you're a true spiritual revolutionary Thanks, um, dude. it's always good to see you it's always good, it's good to, to hear you, you um 
if you want to check out this book, you should. <laughs> I you mean, could, we're not trying to so look. No, I think you should yeah. check out this book. Like, it, yeah. It's, uh, I started reading some of it last night. Um, I'm like reading three different other books right now, but I started reading some of it last night. And I thought, sounds like Michaela's. You got to read it with somebody, though. I will read it with somebody. Yeah. I'll read it with my read, girlfriend. Totally. That would be sick. I would love that. It's like it'll be a whole new like path of intimacy. It'll be something. and I want to go through the steps with her too. You don't have to. You can do that. You can do that. Okay. I mean, because all the stuff that you would get from doing what I would do in the big book is mm -hmm. in here. It's just not. I in... think it would make her world if I told her, "Hey, do you mind if we just lay down tonight and read a book together?" Totally. It'll be sick. All It'll right. It'll be really cool. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's good to have you on. Um, All right, man. Thank you. I will be coming through your uh, a lot of house on the <laughs> west side of LA very cool. soon here. Considering I, I, I'm up there too sometimes. Okay. Um, we are going to wrap it up. I love you guys all. Thank you for tuning in today. Was there any questions today, Carrie? Nothing? All right. And uh, we'll be back again next week cool. with a few more new guests. Awesome. Love you. Thanks. Love you too. Thanks for having me, man.